We, we started with Genesis 3, 1 to 5 last time. And that is all the farther we got. <laughs> because it, this is where it all started. This is where the sin problem began. And when we, in order to understand the plan of salvation and the atonement, we have to know what the rudimentary pr- uh, issues are in the reason why we need atonement, the reason why we need salvation. And the way God saves us is tailor-made to what went wrong. And the better we understand what went wrong, the better we can understand how God's plan of salvation works. So we talked about how the serpent lied to us, basically, about God. And we talked about specific lies. Uh, But the most significant lie, the one that undergirds the atonement, for me, is the one that says, you shall not surely die. Now, how, how could God explain death to someone who has never experienced it? Not a leaf from falling from the tree, not an animal dying, um, never had to kill a fly. <laughs> what, how would God explain death to someone like that? Asleep. Asleep. Okay, you go to sleep and never wake up. That sounds scary, doesn't it? Do you think that having not experienced it, it would be real? Do you think that you would really have it clearly understood in the same way that you would if you had experienced I'm convinced that we only have learned when we only hear it or see it in print. Hear it said, see it in print see it in words, or hear it in words, as opposed to when we experience something. When we experience something, that's when we really actually learn it. So, this is a very big problem for God. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because everything in Genesis that we're going to be looking at has to do with this problem in some way. For example, we go to Genesis 4.9, the Cain and Abel story. And immediately you have death. Uh, The death doesn't start with Cain slaughtering Abel. What's the first death in the story, and the first death, therefore, in Genesis? The death of the lamb. The death of the lamb, or uh, let's see, let's get this exact, the firstborn of Abel's flock. So where does that come from? Now, traditionally, I think rabbis taught and people in Christianity have assumed that God instituted the sacrificial system. He, in the Garden of Eden, he had Adam and Eve uh, offer an animal. And we're going to start with that assumption. Okay? Why would God have a sacrificial system? What would be his goal or purpose in it? To lead up to Jesus, like, with Jesus being the final sacrifice, like, start that soon, so you show them exactly what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, to, to lead them to Jesus, to help them understand his sacrifice. Uh, what else? I don't know, but I think that he wants to show them, like, the consequences of sin. Ah. 
you remember when you were a child and your parents told you not to do something and you had no clue why that something wasn't good. I had a student one time who told me that when she was three years old, she had this habit of running in front of cars. And she loved to run in front of cars. And her parents talked to her. They sat her down. They gave her time out. They did everything they could think of to keep her from running in front of cars. And she still ran in front of cars. She said one day her parents spanked her. And she said, I never ran in front of cars again. Because what they had to do was to equate pain equate pain with running in front of cars. She couldn't compute the logic. She couldn't compute the explanations that they tried to give her. She could only compute, this is going to hurt if I run in front of cars. And, and so here's God with, faced with, with Adam and Eve never having seen death. The serpent says, no, you won't die. How can he make this real? experientially real so he he has them offer this animal i i can just imagine the trauma that must have caused adam when he offered that when he had to slice the juggler vein of that animal that's how they they killed uh, their sacrificial offerings and the point to be made is he, he put his hand on the animal. We're assuming this from Leviticus chapters uh, 1 through 5. He put his hand on the head of the animal uh, and, and maybe pressed down, equating his sin causing death. Not just any death, but the death of an innocent creature who didn't do a thing to deserve what he was getting. This, to me, is very foundational to understanding why Jesus had to die. Because my killing an animal because, of I, because I sinned doesn't quite make the clearest equation between sin and death. And that's why I think Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats had no power to take away sin. They had no power to, to deal with sin. But now we come to Genesis 4, and we have this, this sacrifice. And uh, why don't we read uh, not just verse 9, but we'll start with verse, well, let's start with verse uh, 1. And who would like to read first? Tara, you want to read first? Uh, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Okay. So we, we have this uh, offering. Uh, it doesn't say anything whether it's a sin offering, a burnt offering, or whatever. This is, this is now at the very beginning of things. My sense of things is it was a simple offering, and that's the term that is used here, really, is a simple offering. Uh, 
Some see this as a food offering because it's equated with grain offerings, which we are called food offerings. And that may be true. But uh, that that whole concept of a food offering comes out of a really rather Mesopotamian view that the gods ate the offerings that you brought them. And uh, Psalm 50 makes it very clear God doesn't need the flesh and blood of bulls and goats. He's, do I eat the flesh of, of bulls and goats and do I drink their blood? And the obvious answer is no. God doesn't need that, uh, those sacrifices to do that. So... Here's the, these two offerings. One is a, a food offering, obviously, of, and it's called the same, by the same term in Hebrew, minka. That's what Cain brings. He brings something he has developed and grown and, in a sense, earned. Why do you think he didn't want to bring a sheep or a lamb? Like on a, on a petty level, right? Because they're the two brothers, right? Cain and Abel. Right. On a petty level? I don't know. I guess I'd. It would bother me on a petty level to have to have to ask my brother for something to make yeah. an exchange. Having having I'll having a, having, you a so having a younger brother, you know. It's just so the way pride. Si- yeah, sibling pride, pride. Maybe sibling rivalry. But the, the truth is that God accepts Cain's. I mean Abel's offering, but not Cain's, and uh, that makes Cain very very unhappy. So, uh, Jonathan, would you read... Oh, you don't have your Bible. Read the next few verses. Starting where? Verse 6 of chapter 4, Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother... Abel, let's go out to the field. When they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my my brother's keeper? Okay, let's stop there. Um, When God asks him, Where are you? Or where is your brother Abel? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What is he implying about Abel? What does that word keeper refer to? Is he referring to him being his overseer, his parent, his guardian in some sense? Um, possibly, possibly the word keeper is a not-so-friendly term for keeping the flocks. The, the friendlier word is shepherd. Shepherd is, is, has a kind, uh, protective, safe kind of nuancing to it. Keeper is just, I, I watch over the flocks, yeah, I keep them, but I don't really care about them, I don't really own them, um, I might be just a hireling keeping them. Am I my brother's keeper? What is he implying about Abel? He's just a cattle. Implying, <laughs> okay, he's just an animal. Is he an animal that I need to slaughter for you for a sacrifice? The implications are strong, and I'm not alone in in making the connection here, that when he slays his brother, he is angry because he sees God as arbitrary, revengeful, and severe, and wanting blood to appease him. 
And so he's like, as if saying, okay, you don't want, you don't want my food offering. You want blood. Here's the blood of my brother. And what we have possibly here in the story is the first human sacrifice. Okay, uh, Robert, would you uh, read verses 10 to uh, 14? All right, reading from the NIV. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you, have dri- you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Okay. What does it mean the blood of his brother cries out from the ground? This is a a difficult phrase, Um, blood crying out from the ground. You have a possible solution, Robert? Uh, Maybe. Uh, I know that God said after the flood, which is after this, that the life of a person is in their blood. The life is in the blood. Um, So coming from that standpoint... um, that life was taken away, uh, and God felt that because it was perfect. That void, that loss, all of a sudden uh, of life, that alarmed His spirit, possibly. Okay, so the loss of life, uh, the blood represents life. The life is gone. God has lost one of His children, uh, and that's very painful. Anything else? Any ideas on what it meant anciently to most people when they would read this text? How how would people anciently have interpreted it? Anciently, yeah. Uh, People reading the Bible, how would they, in, in in the time of Moses or someplace? They would probably think that Dead people can talk. Oh, okay, but that's possible. Uh, that is very possible. Not in, not supposedly in Israel, um, though. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that some imbibed in that. But the Bible doesn't teach that. What most ancient people would have understood is that this blood crying out cried out for revenge, retaliation. What do you do with that? And does God seek revenge from Cain? Does he say, I'm going to be on your case and I'm going to make life so hard for you? Or does he say, you killed somebody, you deserve to die, whack, you're dead. What happens in this text? Why don't, um, Zang, why don't you read verses, just verse 15, that's all we need. Mm-hmm. And the Lord said unto him, therefore, whosoever slay Cain, revenge it, revenge Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Um, so, so what God is saying here is I'm, I'm going to protect him. He protects the first murderer. He doesn't have him put to death. He doesn't kill him. 
What does that suggest about God? He he doesn't want to continue the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. If he kills Cain, then anybody who kills somebody is going to be killed. There's going to be continual bloodshed. He he's trying to stop the bloodshed here, not perpetuate it. Now, you now I want you to notice the language in this, and this is. Um, let me remind you of something I mentioned briefly last year, and I've been teaching it in my classes. That uh, I I believe there's two voices in the Old Testament: a major voice and a minor voice. Uh, the minor voice is God's preferred will, uh, the, the ideal will. Uh, the major voice is God's will adapted to the will of the people. Uh, meeting the people where they are speaking a language they can understand. And I I have cri- specific criteria I follow for the minor voice. Uh, the minor voice is usually tied to creation. In the beginning, it was not so, Jesus said. Uh, you've heard that refrain quite a bit this week. <laughs> so, uh, in the beginning, it was not so. Uh, so, creation, anything that is unique in the ancient Near East... Is, is the minor voice and because it's God's preferred will juxtaposed against the prevailing cultures of the ancient Near East. Um, and there's a specific other criteria. Uh, this is Genesis. Most of my major, minor voices I find in Genesis. Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book tied to creation, uh, seems to talk in the minor voice more than any other book of the Old Testament. So notice how God unpacks this. Uh, look at verse 11 again. Uh, the, voice, the, the voice cries out from the ground for, for something, for justice, for, for something to happen. Uh, there has to be consequences to this. You can't just say, oh, well, too bad, my brother's gone. So be it. Uh, that, is, that is dangerous. That means we've become hardened. We don't care about life. We have no respect for people. We have no respect for life. So it's extremely serious. But now he says, so now you are cursed from the earth. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. You are cursed away from the earth or you are cursed by the earth. God doesn't curse Cain. And you remember, I, I may not have pointed this out last time, but in Genesis 3, God does not curse Adam and Eve. I, I get told that, that he does <laughs> by students all the time uh, who assume that God cursed them because he pronounced certain things that were going to happen to them. But the truth is God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses only the serpent and the ground. God doesn't like to curse people. So in the minor voice, he doesn't curse people. Doesn't mean there's no curse. The curse here in the minor voice, which is the God's preference of how to state this, is not from God's hand. The land which he has tilled, which Cain has tilled, and which he, from which he has grown crops, has rejected him. Because he shed blood on it. Uh, in order to understand how that works, you have to think in terms of ancient Near Eastern uh, rituals of purification. Uh, shedding blood was pollution in the Bible. Uh, it was polluting the land. And this, is, I think, is more true of the Israelites than other cultures around them. So does the land have some power? I know I'm just saying this. I know I don't believe that 
anything else really, really. It's, it, really it's, a, it's inanimate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, However, violence has an effect on nature. It doesn't mean that the land thinks, has a consciousness, or anything like that. It just, there's an effect on nature, I believe, when we're violent. I'll tell you a story, and and my mother has, has pondered this. I mean, it could be simply that God removes his protection and and as a result uh the land suffers but my mother loves to garden and she every house she's ever lived in the land around has just blossomed and flourished and they moved to some many years ago they moved to north fork at the edge of the sierra nevada range i mean the foothills of the sierra uh and they had lots of pine and and other trees in there and uh, they had built their house on granite. Uh, they had to actually cut down into the granite to provide the pad for the house. And my mother tried bringing in soil, tried to plant. And the deer ate everything she planted. And she tried to find deer-specific plants that deer wouldn't eat. And the deer still ate them. <laughs> And she would get so angry at those deer. She would run out of the house and yell and scream at them and chase them off. And she did this countless times in a day. And nothing would grow. Nothing would grow. And in fact, everything began to die out there. And so she stood out there and one day and pondered her situation. And she began to wonder, do you suppose that my anger and my rage at these deer is not helping anything out here. (laughs) So she decided to take a different stance. She decided to allow the deer to eat her plants as they wanted. And she just planted more of them. So she planted and she planted and her yard began to flourish. The deer became her pets. (laughs) When apple season came along and they were were, uh, canning apples... They would take the peelings out and throw them out to the deer. Uh, they would make sure the deer had water to drink. And the deer would, if the water pan went empty, the deer would start banging on it to remind them to please give them water. Um, it was a total transformation. And you, you wonder, if you multiply the Cain and Abel story by a billion people, everybody's killing everybody. You know, there's, there's slaughters all the time. What effect would it have on the earth? It certainly would shut out God's presence. And God's presence is needed for life on this planet. If God were to walk away from this planet and remove his presence, we would all die instantly. So, the other thing I want you to look at it, therefore whoever kills Cain, verse 15 Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Is this a a statement God's going to direct and going to make happen? Or is this going to be the consequences of killing Cain? To me, it's the consequences. It's the same thing as in chapter 3, the chapter before, where God says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. I will, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread Uh, and so on 
I don't see those as things God does, even though the wording seems to suggest that. But the Bible is pretty clear that God suggests that he does a lot of things that we know he didn't do, like send leprosy into houses and and uh, uh, slaying Saul, for example. For the First Chronicles uh, 10 says that thus the Lord slew Saul. Yet a few verses up, we read, read that Saul took his own life. So, so this is these are rhetorical expressions that the that be really show the biblical writers' worldview and their way of expressing themselves. So I see these not as dictums. Uh, this is what I'm what I what I mandate must happen. But no, this is what the consequences are going to be. And so he protects. He sets a mark on Cain. I don't think he really had to. I think Cain said put a mark on himself. I think his face got dark and and unloving. And it was fearsome to think about what he had done. I mean, we, we are accustomed to death. We read about it in the news all the time. People slaughtering people. Think of it, having been in a world where no one ever would think of killing anyone. And what that would mean when somebody did it. It would just be horrifying, horrible uh, to look at. So already we have a situation where the waters are getting increasingly muddy. Someone murders his brother, uh, maybe offers him as a human sacrifice, and God protects the first murderer. It seems that God does not enjoy bloodshed. He wants to prevent it. But what happens then in the story in Genesis? What happens next is that the, this becomes a perpetual thing. Um, in the same chapter, Lamech, who is a son, a grand, great-grandson, great-great-grandson of Cain, several greats. <laughs> He's the seventh from Cain, okay? So he took... You want to read Zang verses 19 and, and uh, just verse 19 for now. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. Okay, now read verse 23 and 24. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Uh, Hearken in unto my speech, for I have slain a man, um, a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. So now, this is this is sheer retaliation, right? He gets wounded, and he doesn't wound back; he kills. So now, and he, he claims he'll have divine protection because of it. You know, if Cain got protection, I'm going to have multiple times protection, 70 times what Cain had. Now you have not only murder, but you, you have brazen murder as revenge and arrogance. And what happens next? Go to chapter 6 and... Charlene, when you, why don't you read verses 5 and 6? The Lord saw how great 
the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Okay, now read verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and f- was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Okay. So what happens is there's revenge, rebond, revenge killing upon revenge killing, and it, and it just escalates until the whole earth becomes filled with violence. And <clears throat> verse 13 is interesting. God said to Noah, An end of all flesh has come before me. Now, many versions say, I will make an end of all flesh, or something along those lines. But in the Hebrew, it's really an end of all flesh has come before me. I see that this is they're going to self-destruct. All the innocent people are going to be killed off, and the earth is, they're just going to slaughter one another off to the last person. And then uh, the next phrase in the Hebrew really is literally, and behold me, destroying them with the earth. Uh, again, if you understand deterministic language, what this suggests is that the earth's violence has resulted in something so cataclysmic that it brings on a flood. And I was taught in, in physical geography that all that needed to happen is for the axis to tilt just the right amount to upset the earth and, and change the weather patterns and bring rain and flooding and, and all of that. So, is it clear? What causes death? And particularly, what about a final death? Which, the Bible hasn't talked about a final death at all. We don't know when God's just from the first few chapters of Genesis, we don't know when God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, if he was talking about the first death or the second death. I think he's talking about the second death. We'd like to read that into it, but the Bible doesn't discuss the second death until Revelation. Although in between, somewhere probably around the exile, Jews came to believe in a judgment. Maybe, maybe actually earlier, when it come to think of it, Ecclesiastes talks about a judgment. They believe in a judgment, something there's going to be some kind of um, bringing to account everybody. But the idea of the second death as a second death uh, is not pronounced until Revelation. So it's not real clear. And I'm I, just to take a, a giant leap ahead, it's not going to be clear until Jesus comes and dies. Uh, that's that's what I foresee down the road. But for now, uh, let's go to Genesis eight twenty to twenty two. You want to read that for us, Tara? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Okay. 
Here's Noah coming off the ark. And he is determined not to do anything to cause another cataclysmic event. And so what does he do? To ensure that, to give flood insurance. He takes some of the clean animals and offers an offering to God. He starts slaughtering animals. Is it any wonder that God says to him, I have put the fear of man in animals. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you as an animal be terrified if you saw animals being slaughtered? Did God need all those animals in order not to send another flood? I mean, it wasn't because of Noah that God sent the flood or, or that the flood occurred. So I, I find what God says. Uh, by the way, this term soothing aroma or pleasing aroma uh, has been used by some to mean appeasing aroma, uh, meaning that sacrifices were appeasing God uh, because they had such a good aroma. That's extremely human, anthropomorphic language, that God would be appeased by smelling flesh burning. It, it doesn't seem... It, it, it's, I would call it anthropomorphic for this reason. Again, uh, if we understand inspiration to be work that God imbued biblical writers with thoughts, with his thoughts, and they put them in their own words, in their own frames of reference to make them understandable to the people of their time. Uh, this term is their perception of what it did for God. It isn't necessarily God's way of saying it. Anyway, he says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. I'm going to try a different version. Let's try the New International Version. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though, and there's a footnote, for, and this is what I was looking for. In the Hebrew... In the Hebrew, it is this, it really reads this way. Never again will I curse the ground of humans because every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. The reason they, they manipulate that preposition is because they have a different view of the text than I do. I don't think it needs manipulation. It, the reason God isn't going to curse the ground is not because he smells the sweet savor of burning flesh. It is because the heart is evil from childhood. He looks at the sacrifice. And, oh, they've gotten the idea that I like violence to animals. And so the more of it, the better I like it. That I like the smell a burning flesh. So the more of it, the better. It means that from childhood, it's embedded in them that this is the kind of God I am. There's nothing in that text that says he's appeased. It says the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And, and, and if it was appeasement, it would read something like this. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the grounds because of humans because they have appeased me. Or because... They have given me this soothing odor or because something else. But the truth is, he, he recognizes human beings, they're embedded in this. 
And consequently, they just really don't get it. They don't understand who God is. So I would like to suggest that at the beginning, God instituted a sacrificial system only for one primary reason. Yes, he wanted to show what Jesus would come and do. But I don't know that that was his primary objective. And I'm taking this from Patriarchs and Prophets, where she says that the the sacrifice was to show that it is sin that leads to death. He, He did it to give us some experience with death and equate it with sin. Sin is what leads to death. In the earliest sacrifices, Abel brought his offering as a sinner and he slew the animal, meaning my sins brought about the death of this innocent animal. So there's nothing in it that suggests to me that God is being appeased by offerings. Or that he is the one who will slay the innocent victim and thus any sinners at the end himself. It is sin and sin alone that destroys. That's the point. Uh, in Genesis 13, 2-4, we have Abraham building altars wherever he goes and offering burnt offerings. Uh, there's nothing said about sin offerings, peace offerings, uh, grain offerings, etc., uh, that are later developed. We'll, we'll come to talk about why that is. So next week, we will start with Genesis chapter 22, the, the sacrifice or binding of Isaac. Jews refer to it as the binding of Isaac. Christians call it the sacrifice of Isaac. We're going to look at that through the eyes of human sacrifice, what God is trying to tell us typologically in terms of the atonement, and, uh, and also in terms of substitution. So uh, stay tuned for next week. So let's have prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that even though things for many centuries were unclear, that you were working out your plan and giving us little pieces of understanding that will finally culminate in the coming of Jesus and in his death. We pray that we will grasp this clearly as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.